Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing two nothing. That is the key man. Yeah. Hit high in the air to left field, going to the corner. Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead three two. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now win it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just it went into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi there everyone. Bucky Dent here. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. We have a really special show for you planned today. A great, great guy that I've always wanted to talk to, a Hall of Famer, Cal Ripken Jr., a guy that's set all kind of records, and I am really looking forward to talking to him. And along with me, we have Yankees Magazine Deputy Editor John Schwartz and Al Santiseri, the Editor-in-Chief of Yankees Magazines. Hi, guys. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm really looking forward to talking to this guy. I am too. He's he's somebody who I admired my whole life. I got to work with him a little bit in 2001. And, you know, the admiration I had for him only got stronger. You know, I'm, I, I know I'm really excited to speak to Cal, but I got to say, you know, we, we were talking a little bit and, and before we get there, I just wanted to, you know, give you a chance to talk. Obviously, the Yankees family had some rough news recently with the passing of, you know, Hank Steinbrenner. And, and Bucky, I know you, you, you got to spend a little bit of time with him some years back. And what was your impression? Well, first of all, I want to send my condolences to the uh, Steinbrenner family. And, uh, you know, Hank uh, had a chance to spend some time with him one year with Woody Woodward. Uh, he was the general manager, and uh, we had to go down to the Dominican uh, to open up one of the Yankee baseball schools. And we got to spend three days, and we played golf, and, you know, we had dinner, we talked baseball, and uh, I, I just really enjoyed being around him. Um, actually, he almost killed me with a golf ball when we were playing golf one day. I was standing holding the flag for him and he sculled the ball and it went right between my legs and we we got a big laugh about that but he he was a just a fun guy to be around I, I had a chance to play for uh, you know golf in his tournament for Hanks Yanks and uh, you know he would he just did great things and uh, I really enjoyed being around him and I miss him 
Yeah, Bucky, he was a wonderful man and, you know, always someone that, you know, you could talk to someone who was really just so down to earth and, and really, you know, kind to everybody and, and uh, myself included. It was a sad day, you know, when we heard that news and uh you know i agree with exactly what you say we, we really are gonna miss him yeah we're gonna miss him a lot and you know he was just a uh you know just a fun guy to be around i mean you know he had a great personality and loved talking to him uh loved teasing with him you know he's just uh he we're, we're, we're just all gonna miss him and uh, uh we lost a really a good one you guys both knew him a whole lot better than i did among all the reasons, I mean, there's so many reasons, obviously, that I miss, you know, baseball being around the stadium, but you never want to have to do one of these tributes or one of these, you know, memorials for these people. But at the same time, there is something that's, you know, comforting, you know, whether when it's a, a yogi or something like that who passes part of the Yankees family of getting to, you know, give that person the moment at the stadium. And, you know, you kind of almost wish that there could be the proper tribute to him. Instead of just, you know, kind of this subdued thing in the face of, you know, so much craziness going on around it almost, you know, you, you don't want people to forget that this is a not just a special guy, but an important guy to a lot of Yankees fans. And obviously for for those of us who work for the Yankees or work with the Yankees, a real member of the family. And so, like you said, Bucky, I know that I send my very, very best to the whole family and I wish there was uh, some comfort I could offer them right now. But in the meantime, we'll just, you know, hope that eventually we can all be back together. Yeah. And what he did with the kids, you know, with Hank's Yanks, you know, all the kids that he he provided balls and bats and gloves and an opportunity to play baseball and and to try and fulfill their dream you know I, I think that's what it was all about you know with him and uh, you know trying to to give back and he did a great job of doing that it's a special guy to remember and obviously one of the things that you know I, I hope we get to discuss with Cal in addition to just all the different ways I'm fascinated about his career is that the the Ripken Foundation is actually doing a lot of work right now you know kind of changing its focus a little bit in the face of what's going on around the world and I hope that Cal will talk to us a little bit about the ways that they're raising money you know there, there's so much negativity right now and it's so hard in so many ways but you know like I said anytime you can find something good that people are doing it does make it a little easier you know I, I think uh, with that why we uh what do you say bucky why don't we get cal on the line and we can get this started i'm ready let's go cal it's so great to have you on man you're on with john and al and uh i've been waiting for a long long time just to talk baseball with you talk shortstop and uh you know all the great things that you did in in, in baseball and what you're doing now but welcome to the show my pleasure uh now's the time that uh, we can go back and uh, revisit some old old stories Talk about how the shortstop position has changed a little bit. I tell you what, I'm missing baseball right now. So uh, I'm game. <laughs> I, I think we're all missing baseball. But, you know, talking about changing a position of shortstop, I always tell everybody, you know, that when you moved over to shortstop, you changed the position forever. You know, I mean, it, it used to be, you know, the big guy, you put him over at third base or you put him at first base. But when you moved over, that I think it changed the position. You know, it's become more like, Guys like A-Rod and Jeter, you know, it, it just completely changed it, you know, to where big guys that could hit home runs could play shortstop. You know, uh, I was thinking about that because I get credited for doing that. I mean, I played the uh, position regularly. Uh, I was uh, almost 6'5 um, and played probably an average of 225 um, the whole time I was there. So I was considerably bigger than Omar Vizquel and Alan Trammell and uh, Ozzie Smith and those guys that, uh, that really commanded the position. Uh, since I was a big basketball guy, you know, I almost equated it to like Magic Johnson ran the point. That was really weird. He ran the point because he's a six and nine um, guy, but there was advantages that he brought to that position. And then, uh, 
you know, I'm kind of uh, entrenched in the uh, in the Michael Jordan documentary now because I'm a big basketball fan and watching. And he was uh, he was undersized, and then he grew a lot in a short period of time. So when I start to think about myself, I graduated high school. I think on my scouting report, I was six two one eighty. So I was built a little bit more like Mark Belanger. And then uh, I had a good growth spurt in between 18 and 21, where I uh, essentially grew almost three inches and, uh, you know, put on about eight pounds of uh, muscle each and every year. So once I got to the big legs, I was a bigger guy. But I had always learned to position a shortstop. And I always thought uh, in a way that I was more of a smaller guy. So when I went back, maybe that training or that thought process convinced me that I could do it. But I did have to make plays differently. I mean. Bucky, you were a very uh, mechanical, fundamental shortstop where you were classic backhand. You had your footwork all set up before you threw the ball. You did all the things right, which uh, I love watching. Alan Trammell, very similar. Some of these guys that uh, have uh, different legs, like Ozzie Smith, they would use their legs to round it, field goal on the run. Uh, Omar Vizquel, I couldn't do that. So like the slow hit ball in the hole, for me, was one of the toughest plays. And instead of using your legs to round it and shorten the time and throwing on the run, I would take a shorter, shallower angle. I would spear it with my backhand and try to use my skill, which is stronger arm, to make up the distance to first base. So it was a series of those sorts of adjustments, but I, but I enjoyed shortstop a lot. Mark Belanger was the guy that I watched. You know, I watched him and I watched Ed Brinkman, you know, and, you know, I had a great infield coach. But, you know, we used smaller gloves back then. So you had to catch the ball more with two hands. And, and when I came up with Chicago, it, they had an AstroTurf infield, and then the, the ball came off the turf into the dirt. It, it was like tricky trying to catch the ball, but I, I did the same thing as you did. I didn't play real deep. I played more shallow, and I tried to use angles. I tried to cut balls off and, 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 and get to them a, a little bit quicker. But the thing I was going to ask you is when you were coming up, your dad was an Oriole coach and manager and but who was the guy that really taught you how to play defense? Who was the guy that you you, know, you, you went to, your go-to guy when you started struggling? So I'm trying to make a lot of notes here because you're touching on a lot of things that I want to remember. Um, uh, and uh, since I'll, I'll be 60 uh, later this summer, <laughs> I'm starting to define myself. If I don't write something down, I don't remember as quickly as I used to. But anyway, Mark Belanger. So I had the great fortune at 14 years old to come down to the stadium when my dad was uh, called to the big leagues in Memorial Stadium to go down there and work out early. My dad always said, you know, really respect, uh, you know, the Blades, uh, Mark Belanger's position. He takes ground balls. Don't mess up his turf at all. So if I took ground balls, I'd stay all the way back. And Blade would take ground balls all the way back, you know, and watch the ball and then you know, not not charge it, not do things, try to catch it where the ball was hit to him, sometimes in between hops. And he was a really good instructor. And uh, the things that I remember that he taught me, I could not apply at 14 years old. You know, I didn't have the skill or really the understanding. But it taught me that if you talk about concepts, when you are ready for it, then those words come flying back to you. For example, when you talk about the angles, Bucky, um, I played against you uh, – um, in a couple of places, but I remember in Texas, uh, you were a little more shallower. And I would suspect that you played deeper, um, you know, in the early part of your career. And then as you positioned and as you understood angles, sometimes the shallower angle would give you uh, greater coverage, which sounds weird. And I, I adapted that from you as I played shortstop longer. You know, I started to look at in certain situations playing shallower and using my angles. 
But speaking of angles, Mark Belanger would stand uh, back at the edge of the grass and he would uh, say, okay, instead of thinking straight left and straight right, I want you to think back left and back right. He says, so if you rotate on your, uh, on your crossover step and then you have an angle going back backwards, now you have an angle in which you can track the ball. If you take it too shallow of an angle and you misjudge it, then you can't go back, but you can always come in. And I started practicing over-pivoting on my crossover uh, step, which was really great. Now, to, to contrast that, I did a clinic with Barry Larkin. And Barry Larkin was talking, we were in an Under Armour clinic, and I was talking about those angles. And he, he came up and said, okay, I looked at it a totally different way. He looked at the angles more in front of him. So instead of going back, it was more of an angle, which to me would cut down on your range. But he had such great legs. And it was sort of the same concept when you play a little shallower and you, and you are positioned very well, then you, the angles kind of work for you. But he was a running type, type, type of shortstop. So to me, I took in all that data, listened, and, uh, and, uh, and, and tried to figure out how do I, I play the position myself. But I will tell you that Mark Belanger, that philosophy and, uh, and some of the fundamentals that he talked about with me really resonated almost after uh, – I went back to shortstop when I got to big league. Interesting. Interesting. Because, you know, I had a great instructor and I, I talk about him all the time, Al Monchak. And, you know, instructional league back then was actually what it was, instructional league. So, you know, oh, they used to take us down there mm -hmm. and, you know, in, in 19... You know, uh, 72 after my, my season, I went down to my, my first instructional league and Al Monchak was there. And I used to kind of stand cockeyed, you know, on defense, you know, like I, I would turn like sideways a little bit. And he's the first guy that took me and made me understand about squaring my feet off with the diamond. And he says, I'm going to tell you something you, you don't tell anybody. He says, but if you take the diamond and you turn it, it's a, it's a box. And he says, that's the way I want you to learn how to play. I want you to square your feet off and play it as a box. And, and ever since then, I always played the infield in a box and it always helped me because it seemed like it opened up my vision. And, uh, Later on in my coaching years, I had a guy named Alex Rodriguez in 2001 when he came over and I did the same thing to him. You know, he had just won a gold glove and I was like, you know, I got to go slow with this guy, you know, because he just won a gold glove. But I knew he might have trouble because Seattle's infield was a lot slower than Texas. So um, I used to ask him, you know, where are you trying to set the ball up? Different things like that. You know, we'll make a long story short. Eventually he came to me. He had made a couple errors and I said, okay, you ready to listen? And that's exactly what I did to him. I made him square up the field because he kind of stood on an angle also. And it kind of like opened up his vision and he started moving laterally left and right as good as anybody as I ever coached. I mean, for a big guy, he could, he could go get the ball. Yeah, so footwork, uh, if you really understand, if, if you're a bigger guy, um, I focused on my footwork a lot. And if I felt like I didn't get a good jump on the ball, because some of the young or younger, some of the faster, quicker guys that, uh, you know, weighed 155 pounds, they could uh, almost get a bad jump on it and make it up. But to me, I had to really be efficient in my footwork and the crossover step, being able to pivot. I, if I felt like I didn't get to a ball that I should have got to on the backhand, the next day I would come out stand in the outfield grass and just every batting practice pitch that came in, no matter where it went, if it went to right field, I would try to, to pivot and break as fast as I could in that direction. And the same way is true if it was a pull, pull side. And uh, it starts to train you 
almost as getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. When the contact is made, reading the ball off the bat and then making that initial first step. Because if your first step is efficient and quick, then the other ones will follow. If your first step is wrong or slow and you don't read it, then it's hard for a bigger guy to make up that distance. I'll tell you a quick story about Ozzy Smith. Him and I went to uh, Japan. We shared the position of shortstop in 19, what was it, 86 maybe? So we went over there and uh, so we split our time by, um, he started the first five innings of the game. I came in the last four. The next one I would start five and he would go four. And we didn't have enough coaches to hit ground balls to each other. So we hit ground balls to each other. So my dad would always be very systematic hitting to your right, and then he would point to your left, telling you where it is so you could work on your footwork. It's not a read thing. It's just a a distance thing. So I started doing that naturally without telling Ozzy. So I went one right, one left, one right, one left, one right, one left, and then I went another left. (laughs) And I tried to trick him. But to watch his footwork and see how fast he recovered, he was leaning in the direction that he thought it was going to go. But to see him recover so fast, I kept thinking, damn, I wish I had that. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. your skill is what you have and uh, what you have to work with. And I understood that I really had to, to focus on that initial first step and that footwork on a crossover step to be successful at short. I agree. You know, I'm glad you guys brought up Alex Rodriguez and, and Bucky. You know, I'm glad you brought him up. But, you know, Cal, I, I'd be so interested to hear your thoughts on the way that he played the position. And obviously by the time he got to the Yankees, you know, he moved to third base, but as a shortstop, you know, I'd love to hear your, both of your take on, on him. And also obviously Derek Jeter, who who manned the position for two decades for the Yankees. Yeah. um, I got a chance to meet Alex uh, before he got drafted in Miami. We were down there training in Lauderdale and the old Yankee complex that we occupied for a while. He was a potential number one pick in the draft, and uh, he was brought out to the stadium. I think Johnny Oates introduced him to me at first. And I remember looking at his size then and going, I don't remember being put together that, that well, like at 16 years old. And so he already had a, a bigger frame and a bigger uh, shape. And I was thinking to myself, uh, is he going to be able to play the position of shortstop? Now, over time, we developed a rapport. When he got to Seattle, I would come out early. We'd talk about shortstop and talk about those things. And as he experienced things at shortstop, he would ask me questions because what I didn't have was I didn't have another big shortstop where I could go talk to. I had to start to look at the other uh, smaller shortstops, but I thought he was very smart in the fact that he's trying to figure out how he can play the shortstop position. And he had better legs and better, uh, better quickness. He could steal some bases and those sorts of things. So he had a little different skill set, but he's a big dude. We were talking about all the different ways that you that I had learned and evolved to make a play the way I could. So I gave him options. And he was a pretty good student of the game. We also went to Japan and shared shortstop uh, responsibilities. And that was 10 years later in 1996 when I was over there with him. So we got a chance to spend a lot of time. So he was similar in this in my style, where his angles were more towards the back and towards, uh, you know, laterally. He had a really strong arm. Now I would look at Derek. Derek was sort of a hybrid. He, uh, he had a running style play, uh, uh, and he was a little lighter, but uh, uh, quicker. But his style of play was a little different, whereas I focused more on angles and, uh, and, and uh, positioning a lot of times. Uh, he tended to rely on his physical skill a lot, you know, almost the way uh, Ozzy did, where Ozzy, Ozzy could play straight away on everybody because he had so much range. To me, I would say Ozzy, with that much range, if you really got good at shading one side or the other, you would cover uh, shortstop and second base <laughs> if you wanted to. Exactly. 
But uh, exactly. so that, that, was, you know, that was funny. But but looking at those two guys, I remember having conversations with them at the All-Star Games quite a bit. And some of the things that I picked up and learned. And sometimes they would apply them. And sometimes they would kind of uh, take them in and say, no, nah, that doesn't really fit to my game. Which I really appreciated because the, the biggest thing that you need to do is you have to discover how you play the position. And we're all slightly different. Um, there are things that we can share. But if you... If you pull it, pull something into your game and it works, then you keep it. If you pull something into your game and you can't quite get it, then you discard it. But Bucky, as you're watching someone like Cal come up, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, what the position looked like when you were there. As you're watching someone like Cal come up in the same way he watches you know, Alex and Derek, are you watching the game change in front of your face too? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You're, you know, you're looking, you know, at like when I, when I was playing, you know, we were all little, you know, me, Burleson, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the guys, we were, we were kind of small and more just defensive, you know, bunt, hit and run, move guys over, do little things. But, you know, you'd see it just change right, right in front of you where now you got a guy six, four that's playing that has great hands and knows how to play the position and, you know, studies the position, but now he hits home runs. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see the change just right before your eyes of a position that for so many years was, was, a, was played differently. When you look at the evolution of shortstop, Troy Tulowitzki fascinated me because uh, him growing up, uh, and I got a chance to meet him, he's a bigger guy. He was a thick guy, and he had some good strong legs, but he, he had some thickness to him. So there's some guys that are 6'4", that are more lean and more built for speed. Tulowitzki was thick and, uh, you know, powerful. And so when I watched his style of play, he had adopted almost a hybrid between, because he loved Derek Jeter, and he watched me as well because of my size. And he incorporated some of the similar things, but he was a hybrid too, where he could be a running shortstop at his side and still uh, do the things Derek could do. And then he still uh, created angles and still used the strength of his arm and his size to help him uh, turn in double plays and those sorts of things. So he was a really interesting study. and. It made me realize that um, the advantage of some shortstops now, some shortstops that are bigger coming in, you know, the uh, looking at shortstops on videotape or watching them, you can emulate some of the things they do. When I came up, and um, um, if I remember right, uh, Bucky, you can help me, we, uh, we didn't play on TV all the time. And so you didn't get a chance to fully see. Maybe the All-Star Games were a chance for you to see other players do it. But the benefit of players like Tulowitzki you know, watching, uh, you know, Derek Jeter and watching me and then starting to develop his style as he went along. Lindros is another one, uh, uh, or Lindor, I'm sorry. Uh, I got the wrong sport for a second. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but Lindor, when I was watching him uh, in Cleveland, I mean, talk about somebody that's got great lateral movement and great legs. And he's got a great um, instinct for where to play and those sorts of things. I mean, he was an impressive shortstop, but um, listening to him talk too is that you have the visual image in which to copy, which I think is a, is such a good advantage because here's the possibilities. Let me try this play. Let me try that play. So I think videotape and, and games being on TV has really helped, you know, a lot of the defensive positions all the way around the, uh, the league. And the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, the double play. You know, when when I came up, man, and when we played, guys would come down there and they would try and hurt you. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, you know, who was, who are the guys that when they got on first base, when you're in a double play position, you know, when you first came up, were the guys that you go, 
oh my God, I got to get rid of this ball. This guy's just going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it is funny. And uh, when you think about uh, contact at second base, um, you experienced the roll block. The roll block was legal. They didn't have to slide. They could roll over the bag, go through second base. But there was a great deal of pride on uh, playing the game and playing the game, you know, hard and, and uh, not dirty, but clean. To break up a double play was an important part of uh, base running. You know, if you could break up a double play, you extend the inning by an out. Sometimes you score a run from third if it's first and third. You know, the Kansas City Royals come to mind. Hal McRae uh, really uh, prided himself on getting down there. George Brett came down there, you know, yelling and screaming and trying to roll and break up the double play in all the right ways. Don Baylor probably was the best because Don Baylor had some speed and some size. And he, he anticipated, got up with the pitch and moved. You would think Bo Jackson would have been someone that you're really fearful of. But Bo, Bo was so raw in the game. He had uh, some of the best physical tools you could ever have. But he didn't take a very good secondary lead. So he would, if he was stealing, he uh, went from his primary lead. And if the, uh, if the pitch went to home plate, he stayed in his primary lead. So he wasn't really in the hemisphere you know, to take you out. But I, I tell you, my size really insulated me a lot because uh, when you're coming down there and you're trying to take me um, and then having 225 pounds and I'm coming into you and you're coming into me, that collision could sometimes cause a little damage, um, you know, to them. And I remember a couple of times accidentally running into someone when I'm turning double play. Daryl Miller, Reggie's uh, brother, was with California. And he came up, he was a catcher, and uh, he prided himself on uh, coming down and taking people out of second base. I turned the double play. He came running in, and I had a chance to turn it quick enough and, and, and plant my left leg, which is kind of like a telephone pole at that point when you got your cleat in the ground. And he comes in and runs into it and stops him dead. <laughs> and and uh, he's getting up and knocked the wind out of him. And he goes, hey, Kel, you all right? Oh, yeah, okay. And then I run away. <laughs> and years later, he's telling me that, he couldn't even speak when he was trying to ask me if I was okay. And I just kind of laughed as he ran off. And he said, that's the difference in the minor leagues and the big leagues. Um, it's not so easy to take out a big league, a big league shortstop. Yeah. I was talking before he came on. You know, I w- wanted to ask you that because I remember guys like Kirk Gibson. He sounded like a train coming down there. And, you know, Reggie and Don Baylor and, and Hal McCray, he got me one night in, in, in Chicago. He ran out of the baseline and I threw the ball. And next thing I know, I'm picking my hat and glove up behind second base. But today, I mean, it's different. They just slide it to bag. But, you know, it was art, you know, that we had to learn. I, I mean, as a rookie, you know, to take us out in the grass and have guys slide. And we, you know, we had to get out of the way. But, uh, you know, I got clipped an awful lot. You know, I mean, I I got hurt in uh, Oakland, 1980, a ball's hit back to the pitcher. And Tony Armas was on first base and he come down there and I go across the bag and I throw it and he slid in and I jumped over him, put my hand down and my, I, I cut my wrist on a spike and I thought my career was over. It just missed, you know, cutting, uh, cutting a nerve because, you know, I was smaller and you're right, you know, being a bigger guy, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're not really not going to knock you down. But I mean, is there some point in your, in your streak? that you got clipped or something that you you felt, oh my God, you know, I'm not going to be able to play tomorrow. Was there any time in, in, in that period where you said, oh man, I don't know if I can, I can do this tomorrow. Um, well, a number of injuries, but none, none that came from second base. It was pretty interesting. My brother, Billy, who played second base, as you know, right. he would always laugh at me and he says, he says, second base is the man's position because I'm blind for the guy coming to take me out. 
and I'm relying on you to get me the ball where I can do something. At least at shortstop, we have the uh, guy that's coming after us in front of us. I also remember being at a clinic uh, down at ODU uh, early on in my career with Frank White. And Frank White did a whole section on the importance of turning a double play and getting up in the air. You know, you don't want to have your cleats stuck in the ground when somebody runs into you. So I mean, I, as I think about these things, you're right. You know, dealing with the, ro- the roadblock and dealing with the things. I never thought it was cheap. Every once in a while, a double play would happen. I'd throw the ball over. There's no chance for the guy to get in there and break the double play up because it was just too, balls hit too hard. And it was an easy double play. And it felt like you were getting the ball back from the first baseman and somebody was sliding into your knee with a helmet. And then you'd look down at him and you'd take note of who it is and you put that in your memory bank. And so mm-hmm. you then know that if that ever happens again, you would prepare yourself and you would, uh, you would put your leg down like a, a tree trunk or that you would accidentally on purpose come down on them, <laughs> you know, and then you would send a message back. So that was all part of the game. And uh, that was something... Yeah. Uh, during the uh, World Series, think about this. I was watching that the other day, the, uh, way back in 83. Uh, Gary Matthews, Sarge. Sarge prided himself on that. Uh, he came down there like a freight train. And he, was, uh, he had some speed and uh, anticipated really well. And he was roll blocking over. The one time, you know, he roll blocked and went all the way, you know, over the turf in Philadelphia and all the way back to shortstop. And I think I asked him, what are you doing? <laughs> and he kind of looked up at me and smiled and ran off the field. But I mean, that was the time, and I didn't see anything overly wrong about that. If you're if you're taking out someone or trying to get some contact to break up the double play, if that's your intention, then that's honorable. If you're doing it to get contact or make uh, uh, or to try to hurt somebody in a way after the play's over, it's the same way with catching. You know, the Buster Posey thing that uh, created the rule about catching. There were times when the purpose is to score a run. So if you could slide around the catcher and score, a run, you did. But every once in a while, you had to run into the catcher because he was blocking off the plate, and that was the only chance you had. You could not come in easy to uh, with Mike Socia. You couldn't come easy with Lance Parrish. You had to come hard and come through the plate. But it seemed like as time went on, if people looked at that opportunity coming around third base, that if the catcher was anywhere near, they were going to rock him for uh, 15 seconds on ESPN. And that became wrong. You know, you, 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 your goal is to score to the run. Not to uh, not to maim the catcher. So I I see why baseball has to put some sort of protections in place for the catcher. And you know I can somewhat see that, but I think all that can be managed and enforced by the uh, umpires in the course of the game. But uh, the league took it in their own hands and changed the rule. Cal, you know when I was with you in in 2001 in the Orioles media relations department, you know so much of what we did that season kind of led, led me to, to see all that you gave back to people in need and also to, you know, other generations of baseball uh, players. And, and obviously so much of that has been what your life has been about since your retirement. Recently, I know you've done so much with your foundation and in particular for the Strikeout Hunger Initiative. Talk about, if you would, just the importance of that, especially now with all that's going on in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, Let me give you a little context. I started a foundation, or Billy and I did, when we lost our dad, Cal Ripken Sr., to lung cancer. He was only 63 years old. And uh, we started to say, what was the legacy of dad's life? And and we wanted to bring tribute to him um, in his effort uh, uh, to impact young people, young people getting to the big leagues. uh, You know, he he helped them uh, in the minor leagues. He, He was a father figure. But he also used baseball in some really tough areas. 
around some kids that didn't have all the same advantages to give them an opportunity. So it's not new. Sports has that power and that magic to do that. But dad did that. So we created a foundation to use baseball the same way dad did get in front of kids. We've, uh, we've grown our foundation to a national foundation. We have a board of 35 to 40 people. We have an excellent uh, uh, executive director. We've made a big impact by creating programs, um, building fields. We call them youth development parks all across the country. So when this crisis hit, we're sitting around like everybody else saying, okay, how's this going to affect us? And then we started to think, wait a minute, how's it going to affect us? How can we help? So we turned our focus temporarily from programming and building fields in these areas to give these kids an opportunity and a chance to a more immediate need, which was food insecurity. Many of these kids in these areas relied on the schools and the Boys and Girls Clubs for their uh, meals. And then when you take that away, then all of a sudden, where is that going to come from? So immediately we turned our focus. We put $100,000 up right away. Our, our, uh, some of our partners, Kevin Harvey Foundation, uh, Ollie's Bargain Outlet. Um, Niagara Cares, Group 1001, they wrote some big checks. And all of a sudden, we had a basis and a campaign. We didn't know anything about food distribution, but uh, Feeding America, Feed America does. So we contacted them and say, how can we help? And so we utilized the uh, resources that we have with the resources that Feed America has. And all of a sudden, we have something. And that was the real impetus for me to go on social media. I always thought, I was a little bit too much of an introvert and maybe private in my own life to make that work. But I started to think about it. You can tap into the power of, this, of social media to encourage other people to help. And so we had a nice basis for which to do that. But uh, Feed America says that uh, for every $1 that you donate, it's 10 meals distributed. So just think the impact of $10 can make on uh, these areas. That's, that's 100 meals. And so... By uh, starting, uh, you know, uh, my account on uh, Twitter, and I'm trying to get the lingo right, my handle is uh, Cal Ripken Jr., um, at Cal Ripken Jr., let me get that right. And uh, so by encouraging encouraging that, and I know that I was going to embrace it, and I wanted to do that, so it's not just about the, uh, but, but that was the impetus for me to, to get on social media to ask people for help. And it's been a wonderful campaign. We've continued, we have a partnering organization where we partner with anybody that cares about helping uh, families and these kids in these areas uh, with, with food security. We've had a great deal of success, and I'm very proud of our foundation for coming up with that idea. It's an amazing cause, and you know we hope that everyone listening will will join by going to ripkinfoundation.org to donate, or you can actually text food two zero two zero food twenty twenty with no spaces to seven six two seven eight. Again, that's F O O D two zero two zero to seven six two seven eight. Cal, that's a that's an amazing thing you guys are doing, especially right now. And you know, I, I think I speak for everyone here when I say thanks for that, but also you know more selfishly, you know, thanks for coming on and chatting with us today, Bucky. I really really enjoyed the conversation. I made a ton of notes here because uh, um, you like to uh, shape some of the concepts that we talked about so that you can help other other people. So I made a bunch of notes, and uh, I don't know where this is going to come out on content, but uh, we got a lot to build off of from today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bucky. Well, great. And I just want to make a comment about your dad. He was a great baseball man. In 1972, I used to tease him all the time because he was a manager of uh, the All-Star team that I was on. And uh, I hit a home run for him. Hit the top of the fence and went over. And, and I used to tell him all the time, see, I made you a star. And we used to laugh about it all the time. But, <laughs> but there's one last question I wanted to ask you before I let you go. When you broke the record, if Lou Gehrig was there, how do you think that conversation would have went? <laughs> 
that's a question that's shaped a little differently than uh, any way I've ever asked. You know, they, people have asked me, what would you say to him? Since there's, uh, there's only been a couple of us that have played 2,000 games in a row, you don't have a lot uh, to talk about. And I, I wasn't obsessed with it. I would love to ask uh, Lou. Um, and I would think the answer would be, um, just like today, if somebody would, were to break my record, I would think it's the greatest thing in the world. Because uh, it's a it's a value, it's a principle, it's a responsibility to show up every day to help your team win. And I would hope and I would think knowing about Lou Gehrig and learning about Lou Gehrig was uh, it wasn't about his own personal record. It was about being there for the rest of his team. And uh, I would have loved to have that, that conversation. I tell you what, your class, you do a great job with your foundation and the Ripken experience. And I'd love to talk to you more someday about, you know, your baseball school because I had one for 33 years, but you do a great job for kids. And, and I really admire you and I've admired you for a long time. And I just want to say thank you for coming on. Cool. Well, have me back. I'd love to talk. Love to, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming on. What a great interview. I mean, I could just talk to him for hours and hours. And I know he, you know, he had some things that he had to do and we had to cut it off a little bit short, but I really wanted to talk to him about his Ripken experience, his teaching, you know, what his philosophy is, you know, uh, you know, teaching kids and, you know, just a great mind. And I would, I, I was just fascinated to talk to him. He was awesome. You know, hearing the two of you guys talk about the shortstop position was on the job training and in, in just baseball acumen. That was the, that was one of the coolest things I've heard in a long time. And hey, Bucky, great question at the end, man. You you are you're a seasoned interviewer now. <laughs> I'm getting polished, but that came from my wife. She wanted me to ask him that oh. this morning. Actually, right. when we were walking, she <laughs> says, "I got a question I want you to ask him." And I said, "What's that?" And she goes, "What do you think you would say to each other if?" if Lou Gehrig was there. And I said, that's a great question. I've never, I've never thought about that. So I got to give her credit about that. That's a great question. But I mean, I, I had so many more to ask him, man, about it, you know, uh, about different things, you know, you just, you just don't have enough time, you know, but I mean, he's so great to talk to and he's got so much knowledge, you know, he comes from a baseball family and, you know, I just really, really enjoyed talking with him. Well, you know, I'm curious, we didn't get to talk to him, but I'm, yeah, let's go to 1983 for a second, Bucky. You know, you're playing against this guy. He's just a kid at the time. Obviously, you know the pedigree. You know, I don't think when you probably matched up with him for the first time in the first Rangers-Orioles game, you realized you were looking at the, you know, 1983 MVP. But what were you seeing in the early going that year? Well, you see a guy with great talent, a big kid, you know, with just raw ability, you know. And coming, you know, coming through the Oriole organization, you knew – you know, playing the Baltimore Orioles back when I came up, you know, they were the team that you're worried about. I mean, they, they defense, I mean, Brooks Robinson, Mark Belanger, you know, Boog Powell and, you know, Bobby Gritch. And, you know, you just, you know, what I, I learned real quick, if you hit the ball on the ground, you better hit it hard or somebody, one of them guys that wasn't going to, was, was going to get to it and it wasn't going to go through. They were going to rob you of a hit, you know, and then if you hit it in the air, you had Paul Blair in center. So you knew that defense was, was, their big thing, defense and pitching and, and, a, th- and a three-run homer. and But he was a talented young player. Talented old player, too, as it turned out. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, just, I just get amazed that, you know, he played that many games in a row because I know I played 159 games my first four years, and there were some days that I would get up, you know, and I'd be just sore. You know, get knocked down on a double play, get hit with a pitch, you know, and you just, you just go, man, I don't, I, you know, 
but I got to go out there and play tomorrow. But I mean, just for him to play that many games in a row, it's just that that record will never be broke. You know, you, you touch on something that I've been curious about for a while, because I almost think it's easier to understand playing 162 games than it is playing, you know, 155. Let's say you play 155 games as you did a couple of times, you know, those seven games, is that just a situation of your manager, whoever it is at the time, just saying, you know what, just take a day. Or is it you saying, you know what, like I could really use a day. What what happened for you to be out of the lineup on those days when you were obviously already playing so much. Oh, John, I never asked for a day off when I came up. (laughs) I mean, the guys that told me, I played for Chuck Tanner, and one thing that the veteran guys told me is this, don't ask for a day off. He said, you know, one of them told me, I said, I asked for a day off and he gave me three. And he says, are you ready to play now? And I got the hint, you know, that you didn't ask for a day off. He would, if you were tired, he he knew when to take you out of the game, you know, and and, get, and give you that day of rest. But, you know, I never went into manager's office and said, hey, I, I need a couple of days of rest. Never did that. You know, I'm kind of of two minds about that. Obviously, I mean, that that's the way the game was. And I, you know, respect it like crazy. I think we've also seen a lot lately, just a lot of these times when you're seeing, you know, as difficult as it still is to deal with injuries in the sport, we obviously know more about the body just in the, you know, 20, 30 years since your career. But how often do you see the guys who are getting hurt because they don't take those two days off or those three days off, you know, or they try to make a one day thing when it should really be a five day thing. And, you know, I wonder so many of your contemporaries who would have had longer careers, better careers, maybe if they did have doctors saying like, you need to sit down for a week. Well, I I think now because guys are making so much money and they have so much more technology, you know, like, you know, we get hit with a pitch, you know, we very seldom went to get an x-ray or, or, you know, or MRI. I never heard of an MRI, you know, but now they have them in, in the, right in the stadiums where, you know, you right after the game, you go get an MRI and they check you out. It's totally different. I mean, you know, you get hit with a pitch or something like that, or you get hit and get clipped or something like that. They say, rub some dirt on it. Let's go. You got to go out there and play. (laughs) And the other thing was, you know, the big saying is you don't want to get Wally pipped, you know, I mean, you're you're here in the big leagues. You want to stay in the big leagues. You don't, you don't sit out because somebody, somebody going to take your position and you may never get back in there. And that was the mentality that we had. Well, when I when I covered uh, college wrestling, my, my guys on the beat with me, we believed in the magic bucket because every single time anything happened to any one of the wrestlers, a coach would just bring over a bucket for him to spit in. And like it was just like, I don't understand how his body's being twisted around. And you think that him spitting in this bucket is going to make him better or somehow. But they kept bringing that bucket out for the guys to spit in. And, you know, it, it was the magic bucket. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I just I just marvel at that streak that, that he was in, because like I said, you know, telling some stories earlier that. You know, I, I got knocked down in Oakland. I got cut. You know, I had to sit out a few games because I had stitches in my wrist. Then the next year, I missed the World Series in 1981. I got hit with a pitch in Chicago. Dennis Lamp hit me in the shoulder. Gidry shutting him out 5 nothing in the seventh. I get to first base, and I go, I'm going to go down there and kill this guy on his double play. And sure enough, ball was hit to Giza, and he threw it to Bernazard, and I went down to slide real hard, and I put my hand down, hit the corner of the bat, tore the ligament, missed the rest of the season, missed the last World Series that I probably, you know, would have ever played in 1981. And, you know, you just get up and shake your head and go, man, that was stupid. <laughs> it's karma. My whole impression of Cal is he's the Hall of Fame player. He's a guy that, you know, had over 3,000 hits, more than 400 home runs, really was the face of a franchise for a long time. And, and in Baltimore, there's still nobody 
that's more famous, more popular, more beloved than Cal Ripken Jr. And, and I think that includes every athlete and, and every person who's played there or lived there or been there. I always felt like the Dreek was the thing that made him transcend, not just from an athlete or a great athlete, but to an icon, literally to a national and international icon. You know, as somebody who played against, I mean, did you view it the same way? Well, yeah. I mean, that was something that everybody just marveled at. But I mean, I mean, if you look at his numbers and what he's accomplished, I mean, holy cow, he was, you know, AL MVP in 1983 and in 91, rookie of the year, 82. He was a World Series champion in 93. And I really wanted to ask him about that. You know, he played in the second year, he got into a World Series and he never got there ever again. You know, I mean, they went like 13 seasons without even getting into playoffs, I think, you know, so not only did he have have some great personal things, but, you know, some of the ups and downs that he went through, you know, the the struggles, those are the things that I wanted to talk to him a little bit more about because we as athletes, you know, I mean, here's this great, great player, but, you know, what about the ups and downs? You know, I, I think I, I saw a note the other day, you know, in 1982, he started out seven for 68 and then all of a sudden he turned around and became the rookie of the year. But, you know, people don't understand baseball has a lot of ups and downs and he's endured all those things, you know, and still played every day. And, it, you know, you had to have a tremendous mindset to do that. It's a great point because there were some lean years there in Baltimore. I mean, they're going through them again, but I know like even at the end of his career, they had some good years where they were, you know, they were in the postseason, I think 97, 98 in there. And then it kind of reverted back to, you know, where they were losing, I don't know if it was 100 games a year, but it was quite a few and they weren't in contention. And I, I agree with you. I think the fact that he was able to come out and play even after the streak as consistently as he did and as many games in a row as he did and as many games a week as he did for teams that, you know, they, they weren't competing. I mean, they weren't competing even in the beginning of the season. I, I think it makes it even more astonishing. You know, I, I always, you know, marvel at, you know, how Mariano Rivera's games pitched, the number of games he's pitched, almost every single one of them has mattered because every single year the Yankees were in contention. You know, it's kind of like the opposite with Cal. And it's not that those moments didn't have pressure, but what they had was the need for even more of a motivation to get out there and play hard when the Orioles may have been out of it by June. I know, you know, he grew up and, you know, his, you know, his dad was a, you know, lifetime Oriole, but when free agency came about, did he ever think about maybe going someplace else, you know, maybe going to New York or going to, you know, uh, another team, but he stayed in Baltimore and you got to give him a lot of credit. He was, I mean, just, you know, what he did and what he's accomplished in there, you just, and what he's doing now after being a player, you know, what he's doing with his foundation and what he's doing with kids with the Ripken experience. You, you just got to admire this guy. That was awesome. And hey, I'm pretty sure at the end there, I heard him uh, say that he'd be back. So we should make sure that we get Cal on here again. In the meantime, Bucky, another great episode. Thanks so much for running the show here. Al's great speaking to you too. We will be back in two weeks. Look forward to, uh, you know, more of these great discussions from just, you know, guys around the game and, you know, hearing stories. I, I love the, I love the stories, Bucky. Thank you. Me too. I love to hear it. And that's what I wanted to talk about. I know all the, you know, the things that he has done and won, but I wanted to talk you know, just shortstop and baseball and how he changed really the position, you know, of shortstop as a big guy. 
If you want to stick with us, we hope that you'll subscribe to the Deep to Left with Bucky Dent podcast. You can go to yankees.com slash podcast or really anywhere you get podcasts. Obviously, we hope that you'll also, while you're there, subscribe to the Yankees Magazine podcast. You can also follow everything that Yankees Magazine is doing right now at yankees.com slash magazine. And we look forward to speaking to you in two weeks, guys. Be well, be safe. Keep saying it. You know, not, not nothing's really changing. Just stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll speak to you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Okay. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.